Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke, Gospel of Luke, brand new teaching series. I'm excited about this. Certainty in a world of doubt. We're going to be working our way through the Gospel according to Luke and uh, kind of a sub-series here during the holidays, Christmas gifts. We'll be first of all, uh, we'll first of all look at Luke chapter 1 verses 1 through 4, then we'll jump to chapter 24 and we'll look at verses 25 through 32. These are the bookends to the book of Luke and we're going to talk about certainty. That's the gift we're going to open this weekend, certainty. Now imagine you're hiking and you lose your footing and begin to fall off of a high cliff. There is a branch sticking out of the side of the cliff that is your only hope and more than strong enough to support your weight. How can it save you? If you are intellectually certain that the branch can hold you but you don't reach out and grab it, you will fall to your death. But if in your mind, if your mind is filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you will be saved. Because take a look at your sermon notes, it's not the size of your faith, but the object of your faith that matters most. It's not the size of your faith, but the object of your faith that matters most. Strong faith in a weak object is fatally inferior to a weak faith in a strong object. So, so here's, here's what you need to understand. Faith, faith is not a feeling, it's not a force, it's not a formula. Faith is fellowship with God. It's knowing God, the eternal creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. So if you want to grow in faith, what do you got to do? You don't muster it up some way or try to stir it up within you. You get to know the object of your faith. Oftentimes when we say, I'm having a hard time trusting God, the remedy for that would be to get to know God. Get to know God, and as you get to know him, as you grow in your knowledge of God, then you will grow in your faith. You will begin to experience more and more faith. In fact, that's what the Bible tells us in Hebrews 11.1. 1, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So this idea of certainty, certainty is a firm conviction that something is true. So faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain, certain of what we do not see. Now, everybody has faith. Not everybody has faith in God. The object of our faith is God. See, the Lord Jesus Christ. But even atheists have, have truth claims, have faith. They're, they're counting on something. So whether you're an atheist or a Christian or whatever, for you to exist, for you to, to have life, you, you have a belief system, you have truth claims, and you're, you're putting your hope in those truth claims. And so, so the question I'm gonna be asking you as we kind of walk through this is, okay, so what is the source of your truth claims and how reliable is that source? And so what we begin to see as, as Christians that our, our truth claims are, are about Jesus and our, 
And how reliable is our source? Pretty reliable. And, and the more you get to know the reliability of, of the source of your faith, that is Jesus, the more your faith will grow. The certainty will, will continue to grow. And um, so, so here's the thesis statement, and this is kind of how the outline is laid out. The gospel is, this is what we're going to learn today as it relates to, to certainty, the gospel is a true story about Jesus that challenges the mind and satisfies the heart. You guys ready? So this is what we're gonna do. I'm gonna pray a couple verses here, Psalm 9, 9 through 10, and Romans uh, 10, 17. You'll see why in just a moment, but I'm gonna pray that, and then we'll, we'll read our text, and then we'll unpack these notes. So let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we are delighted to be here today. We love you. We love spending time with you. We love our time with you in worship through song, and now we worship you through the study of your word. It tells us in Psalm 9, 9, and 10 that you are a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, and those who know your name, those who get to know your character will trust in you. As we get to know you, so our, our trust in you will grow. That's what we want this morning. We want to get to know you so that our, our trust, our certainty, our confidence, our faith will grow in you. As it tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So as we study your word through the work of the Holy Spirit, grow us in our faith in our trust, in our certainty, in you, our Savior, the object of our faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. I'm going to read through it, beginning in Luke chapter 1. We'll look at verses 1 through 4, and then we'll jump to Luke chapter 24. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Verse four is gonna kind of give us really the purpose of the, of the whole book, the agenda here that you may have, there's our word, certainty, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now turn to Luke 24, chapter 24, we'll begin reading verse 25, and he said to them, this is Jesus, though they don't know that this is Jesus, but Jesus is speaking to the two guys on the road to Emmaus, two disciples here, and he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So the first part that we read, he was saying that you might have the certainty about the things that you have been taught. Now, what, what was he taught? He, he was taught the scriptures, and Jesus is saying that the scriptures are all about him. 
Verse 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? This is the word of the Lord to us this morning, this weekend and so great word. So here we go. The gospel is, first of all, a true story. Now let me give you a little background. I want to give you very quickly the author the audience and the agenda. Typically, when you study a book, do a book study, those are the three big questions. So let me quickly go, first of all, the author is Luke. He was a doctor, and Paul calls him a beloved physician in Colossians 4.14. And as a beloved physician, he was a close friend and companion of the apostle Paul. He also wrote another book besides Luke. What was that book, anybody know? Acts, yeah. It was uh, the book of Acts, and so what's fascinating about these two books, he wrote Acts as a continuation of the story of the Gospel of Luke. And so where Luke ends, the book of Acts gets going. That's where it begins and continues to take the story further. Luke is the longest and the most comprehensive of the Gospel accounts. In fact, he's, uh, he's the most complete storyteller of the saga of salvation. He covers 60 years with the book of Luke and also Acts. So 60 years from the birth of John the Baptist, we'll look at that next week, from the birth of John the Baptist to the preaching of Paul in Rome, that's where Acts finishes. So his writings cover one third of the New Testament, pretty significant. So Luke was a very humble man. And the reason why we we know this is because he doesn't mention himself in Luke or Acts. There's not much about him. We don't know that much about him. And he doesn't even talk about himself. And we know that proud people talk about themselves. And so he's very humble. And I like that because it's almost like he's kind of hiding in the shadow of the beauty and the glory of who Christ is and what Christ has done. That's what he wants people to know more than anything. Great example for us. But we also know that he's a very educated man. He's a doctor, so he knows how to do research, accumulate information, and then present it, and that's what he's doing here in both Luke and then also in the book of Acts. But also what's fascinating about this is the first four verses that we read is recognized historiographic language. And uh, it's really how educated historians wrote and, and, and the preface, so these first four verses in Luke chapter one is in classic Greek, almost to establish some credibility. People would read that and go, oh, this, this is evidential, this is factual. This guy did his homework and he has the credentials and he's establishing that. And so the first four verses have cla- is written in classic Greek, but the rest of Luke is really written in kind of more of a common Greek language, everyday language. And so that's the author. Who's the audience? Anybody? Theophilus. Did you notice the name there? Theophilus, his name means lover of God. It could be an actual person. There are those theologians that believe it was an actual person, probably a, a Roman official, or 
or it could be a code name for the entire church, those people who love God. So it would really be not just this person, but it could be all of us who love God. He's, he wrote this book for us so that we could have a certainty about the gospel. Now, in either case, and here's the agenda, in either case, the purpose of Luke's gospel is to provide believers with certainty about their faith, a firm conviction that the gospel is true. So that's where we need to talk about we need to talk about this. So can, can we be certain about the teaching of the Christian faith? There are three reasons the Christian faith is certain. So we're, we're talking about this. So the gospel is a true story. Three reasons the Christian faith is certain. Take a look at your notes. Here's the first one. Christianity is a biblical faith. Christianity is a biblical faith. Verse one. So we go back to that first chapter, and he says, a narrative, which is a story of the things that have been accomplished among us. If you have your uh, notes in front of you, underline the word accomplished. So he's saying, these are things that have been accomplished among us. What does he mean by that? Well, he's talking about promises of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament gives us promises. Old Testament are promises made the New Testament are promises fulfilled, promises kept. So what he's saying here, using that word accomplished, so a narrative, this is a story of the things that have been accomplished among, among us. These are things that happened according to God's plan and promises. This wasn't just by chance, happenstance. It's not an accident. He's saying these things were predicted in the Old Testament through the prophets some 500 to 1,000 years earlier. This gives evidence and credibility to the scriptures, actually. The Bible is prophetically powerful. So when you read through the Old Testament, it's making predictions some 500 to 1,000 years earlier, and then in the New Testament, as you read it, you go, oh, wow, that's that's profound, that's unbelievable. We see the fulfillment here. We see God's promise being kept. And that's the point that he's making. That's why in 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, you guys know who Peter is, don't you? You guys know who Peter is? Who's Peter? Peter's one of the apostles, one of the disciples. Remember, he's, he's kind of referred to as the guy who denied Christ three times. I would hate for people to, to refer to me like that. I mean, but, but that's who he is, and I, I can probably best relate to Peter, kind of always put his foot in his mouth and did some kind of crazy things, and yet he was the leader of the early church, and yet what he wrote here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 20 is, is quite, quite profound, I love it, because he says that uh, these were not cunningly devised fables that we presented to you about Christ, but we were, I love his language, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were swept off our feet by who he who he was, what he did. This is God in the flesh. And, and then he goes on in that text, uh, and he talks about this encounter, uh, being one of the disciples, obviously he knew Christ up close and personal, so he's saying, yes, this is God in the flesh, this is the Messiah. But he said, uh, he talks about uh, the, it's, it's that experience that uh, Peter, James, and John, so there were the 12, and then there were the three. So the 12 had a close relationship, but then there were three that had even a closer relationship, and they had experiences that the others didn't have. And so those three went up on the, 
what is known as the Mount of Transfiguration, and they had this encounter and this experience with Christ and saw him in ways that the others didn't see him, and they heard a voice from heaven, and the Father saying, this is my son in, in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And so he talks about that experience, but then he says, he almost kind of discounts the experience, but don't believe that. You need a more sure word by looking at the prophets of the Old Testament. That's what he says. He says, yeah, this was an incredible experience, and I'm telling you as an eyewitness, but, I'm t but you need to study the Old Testament prophets because this is a fulfillment of what they predicted years ago. So pretty significant. Christianity is a biblical faith. It's a biblical faith. Both Old, Old Testament are the predictions, prophecies, and the New Testament is the fulfillment of those pr uh, predictions. And then uh, it's a, Christianity is a historical faith. I need to spend a little bit more time on this. But Christianity is a historical faith. Look at verse 2, chapter 1, Luke. So just as those who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word... So you got your notes in front of you. Underline eyewitnesses and ministers. So he's identifying some people here. This is all based on eyewitnesses and ministers, just as those who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. The many th uh, theologians and historians say that one of his eyewitnesses was, was Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's why he goes into such detail about the, the, the birth and all the events that surrounded the birth of, of Jesus. And notice in verse three, he says, having followed all things closely for some time past. So, so what, we're, what he's saying and what we know is that Christianity is not just a biblical faith, very prof prophetically profound, but it's a historical faith. It's historical, it's evidential, it's factual. It's based on eyewitness accounts. It's, it's out in the open for everyone to see. In fact, as, as he's writing this, and as the New Testament was written, there were eyewitnesses. There were people that they could, that was their primary source. So if you don't believe this, go and talk to the eyewitnesses. Because I investigated it, I talked with them, and here's the evidence. So you can go and talk to them. That's, that's their primary source. Now, in Acts 26, 26 through 27, Paul is giving his conversion story to King Agrippa. Now, you guys know who Paul is? Paul's the, the guy that was murdering Christians and he converted to Christianity because he encountered the resurrected Christ as Peter had encountered him and knew him and so his life was completely transformed. And so he's, uh, by the way, he, he, he goes to his death, he goes from murdering Christians to proclaiming Christ. I would say that's, that's quite the conversion story. Wouldn't you agree with that? That's, that's pretty profound. And he goes to his death proclaiming the risen Christ. So he's in court here, and Paul is giving his conversion story to King Agrippa, and he says something quite interesting. He says, the king knows about these things, and the things that he had been talking about is about who Christ is. And he's talking about Old Testament prophecies, New Testament fulfillment of those prophecies and all that he had encountered as it relates to Christ. And he's just saying, King Agrippa, he's appealing to King Agrippa and sharing his story because he's wanting King Agrippa to come to faith in Christ. And he says, the king knows about these things. It hasn't escaped his notice. It has been done. It, it has not been done in a corner. All of these things, King Agrippa, this was out in the open. You can roll up your sleeves and dive into it intellectually and study this. This is historical. It's factual. It's evidential. 
Now, why would that be so important as it relates to Christianity? Well, when you compare Christianity to the major cults and religions of our world today, most, most of the major cults and religions of our world today originated in the corner somewhere with one individual person that claims that they had some special revelation. You want me to give you some examples of that? Well, it's pretty easy. Book of Mormon, Mormonism, Joseph Smith, he had special revelation. He was inquiring, which is the true religion? God showed up through the angel Moroni, gives him these uh, gold plates and these special spectacles to read them. And you know, just get, the more you read it, the more bizarre it gets. You go, what? And was there anybody around to confirm this? No, there was nobody around. He, he, he came up with this. He, I, I personally believe, and they believe, and they say that he's a true prophet of God, and I do not believe that. I think that much of what he says contradicts with what the scriptures teach, and it was done in a corner. Christianity, out in the open. Historical, evidential, factual. Do the research. That's why he's appealing to King Agrippa. He said, King Agrippa, you, you saw this. You saw all these folks. You saw the eyewitnesses. You had people talk about this. Do the research. Here's another one, Islam. And I know what I'm saying is not politically correct here in America today in our pluralistic culture. I'm not bashing them. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And, and, and the fact is, the fact is, is that uh, Muhammad did that in a corner where he had these revelations and wrote the Quran. There's nobody else around to validate that. Unlike Christianity, it was out in the open. There were many, many witnesses. In fact, what's fascinating about this is in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, Paul writes... He talks about the resurrection of Christ, and he lists a number of eyewitnesses. He says, hey, you can go talk to these folks. In fact, there's some 500. He says there's 500 that saw Christ after his resurrection, and you can go, with, you can go talk to them. These people, when these, uh, when these stories about Jesus were written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and, and much of the New Testament, those folks were still alive. You could go and talk with them during those times based on eyewitness accounts. And so here's, here's what I want you to understand, and I want, I want to teach you something here real quick before we move on. It, that there's a major difference, I want you to think here, there's a major difference between uh, someone making dogmatic assertions versus giving defensible arguments. You guys tracking with me? Okay, you, I, that, doesn't, that doesn't convince me much here. You just shake your head a lot, just like this. Whether you understand it or not, or go like this. I don't know what the heck he's talking about here, but I'm going to shake my head. Just go like this. Okay, so, so dogmatic assertion, defensible argument. There's a lot of dogmatic assertions made in our day and time. Let me ask you another question. Okay, here's, here's, uh, here's a question for you. Do we live in an intellectually lazy Culture, oh, 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 wait, see, I didn't even get to the rest of that. Yeah, you guys are already going, yeah, 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 yeah. You're already shaking your head, and I, and I would agree with you. We live in a terribly intellectually lazy culture, not a smart culture. We are lazy. I mean, I wanted, back during this election, my big question for people when they would come up and spout these things, and even the news reporters, and all the, the influx of news and this, this information overload culture that we live in, I, the, the two questions that I oftentimes will ask is, what is your source, and how reliable is your source? I wish people would just do that. 
And, and I don't know where we, we stopped reporting the news and where we started making commentary about the news. I don't know. Most of the news out there is all about commentary. It's all about spin. It's all about perspective. And it's crazy making. I mean, I had to even turn off the news after a while with this last election because it was just so much, so much misinformation. What is your source? How reliable is your source? All I'm saying is that, hey, here's my source. These guys, these people, they were eyewitnesses. And how reliable? They were there. You can do the research. Investigate it. Look into it. That's what he's saying here. And that's the point. Christianity is a historical faith. Now, I, I, I said that because you can turn on... Uh, you can turn on the Learning Channel, you can turn on the History Channel or PBS, and you can hear these guys and gals that are professors that make dogmatic assertions, but they're not defensible arguments. And here's some of the most popular dogmatic assertions in our culture today as it relates to the gospel records. It goes something like that. Let me, there's three points to this. So popular culture's view of the gospel. There were many, here's the first one, number one, many oral legends were circulated and even embellished upon about Jesus after his death. So a lot of stories floating around, and many of these people, they just kind of embellish the stories. Here's the second point, that later, many of these stories were written down, and so we have a lot of stories about Jesus' life. And then number three, 300 years later, the church leaders threw out all of the others and chose these four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, because these four consolidated and supported their power and their point of view. That's a dogmatic assertion. It's not a defensible argument, but I've heard that. That's, that is becoming more and more popular these days. Even in a lot of real popular uh, magazines, you're going you're gonna to hear that. And the only problem with that is that it's not true. It's a dogmatic assertion. It's not a defensible argument, regardless Regardless of how, you know, how many PhDs a, a person might have, and, and, and they might even sound very convincing, what you want to ask, once again, are those two questions. What is your source? How reliable is your source? And so you've got to, here's what I tell people all the time here. Uh, the Christianity is, a, is an intellectual faith, but it's also an existential faith. It's a satisfying faith. So it's, it's, it's intellectually sound, existentially satisfying. And don't check your brains when you come in here. Okay? I'm going to push you. I want you to think. You've got to think. That's why we spend so much time on Sunday morning. We don't study the scriptures like a lot of churches. It's a, it's a quick sermonette and get through it and just makes a few easy points. We don't do that here. We study hard. We look at this text. I'm going to challenge you. Don't check your brains at the door when you come in. Come in thinking. And that's what, that's what we need to do here. And, uh, and by the way, a lot of this idea, are you guys familiar with the movie The, the Da Vinci Code? A lot of that movie was based on that. Oh, that there are lost books of the Bible called Gnostic Gospel. There are no lost books of the Bible, okay? There's no lost books of the Bible. Those Gnostic Gospel so-called books don't fit within the canon of Scripture. Then that's another thing that we'll have to study some other time. If you come into the game of life, we talk about that and kind of work through that. But it's, it's this kind of objective way of identifying what's Scripture and what's not Scripture. But, but none of those actually fit within that. 
And so let me, let me dispute this idea of the popular culture's view of the gospel. These stories, and what they're saying is that these were legends that were made up over time, and, and these church leaders just picked out the ones that best promoted you know, uh, their view, their idea, their point of view, and their power to establish their power, and that's not true. These stories of Jesus could not be legends that were made up later, but true eyewitness accounts because, and I've got this on your notes, three reasons, there's a whole lot more reasons than this, but let me just give you three. A, here's the first one, written, they were written too early, 15 to 20 years. Paul's account here in 1 Corinthians 15, where he talks about that there were, that Jesus appeared to more than 500, and then he lists some of those people. That was within, that was written within 15 years of the resurrection of Christ. Okay, I know I'm giving you a lot of information, but you gotta, you gotta hang with me. Don't fall asleep here on me this morning, okay? I know this is the second service, and you guys woke up late, didn't you? Okay, usually the earlier service is a little bit more up, up, you know what I'm saying? Because they're early, they're, they're morning people. I don't consider you guys to be morning people so much, okay? And I'm not trying to bash you or anything like that. Okay, maybe I am. But uh, no, I'm not. I'm just saying, you gotta stay with me on this because this is important. This is important stuff. It was written too early for it to be legend. Written too early. It was written within 15 to 20 years. And uh, number two, or letter B, the content is too counterproductive. The content is too counterproductive. These guys didn't just pick these out because it promoted their, their perspective and their, gave them more power. If you really read through the gospel accounts, I mean, they put in there things like Jesus' family comes to him thinking that he's loony. You guys familiar with that part in the? I mean, when I first read that, I go, what, they think he's crazy. In fact, you can read about that in Mark 3.21. Jesus, did you take your medication today? <laughs> Jesus, we need to take you to the hospital, don't we? I mean, that's what they're thinking. No, that doesn't sound, it doesn't sound like it really promotes, you know, the cause of Christ, does it? When his own family is thinking that he's crazy. But why, why would that be in the scripture? Because it happened. It's eyewitness accounts. Here's something else that's kind of counterproductive too. How about Jesus when he's in the garden and he's crying out, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to have to do this. What? You don't have to do this. You're the Savior. You're supposed to do this. I don't want to do this. That doesn't sound very good, does it? But he does say, not my will, but your will be done. How about when he's on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's forsaken him. How do you deal with that? That's troubling. That sounds counterproductive. Or, or how about this one? Uh, this, was a, this was a good one. Women were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ. And uh, that was not an admissible in the court of law. A woman cannot go to a court of law and, and give witness because everybody, everybody knows that you can't trust a woman. I'm glad you laughed. You didn't laugh as much as I hoped you had laughed because you, you should have laughed a little bit harder because it makes me a little bit nervous. Like, did they think I was really serious? <laughs> Uh, kind of, but no, I wasn't. Uh, no, I wasn't, I wasn't at all. But uh, can you? Can you trust a woman? But why was that, if in that culture a woman could not give testimony in a court of law, it was not admissible in a court of law, why would they put that as the first witnesses of the resurrection of Christ? Because it happened. It's eyewitness accounts. But that's counterproductive. It doesn't matter. It's true. It's historical, it's evidential, 
It's factual. And then here's the third, third point, letter C. Literary form is too detailed. So when you th- study, and especially through the Gospel of Luke, there is unbelievable detail. He's a doctor. You know, he's got an eye for detail, and he goes through it. It's 24 chapters. It'll probably take us a decade to get through it. But, I mean, it probably won't take us that long, and we'll take a break from time to time. But uh, listen to what C.S. Lewis, who was a, a, an expert in literature, this is what he said about the Gospel accounts. He said, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. He's talking about gospel accounts. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, eyewitness accounts, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic, narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. He sounds a little snarky there, doesn't he, at the end of that? He's a professor. He's just like, think. He's challenging us. Come on, think. Read, read the Gospels. They didn't have literature like that. It was some 400 years before they actually established that kind of literature. These are eyewitness accounts. He's a literary expert. That's what he's saying. This kind of gospel writing was unknown in this first century culture. Modern, novelistic, realistic narrative began only about 400 years later. So, so no, it's not, it's not legend that people came up with and there's some of the evidence. But, and, and by the way, time does not, there's not enough time to, to continue to work through this. We could spend the rest of the year talking about all the evidence that's out there that validates this, but there's a couple of writers who set out to disprove Christianity. One is Lee Strobel, the other is Josh McDowell. You guys familiar with these guys? And they have written volumes on this stuff. And they both set out to disprove Christianity. I think it's a crack up, it's just so funny for me. Oh, you're gonna try to disprove Christianity. Give it your best shot there, dude. Well, these guys became Christians as a result of that. It converted to Christianity. In fact, Josh McDowell writes in his book, Resurrection Factor, he says that there was so much evidence giving validity and veracity to the reality of this man, Christ Jesus, that he is God who came to this world to rescue and redeem us. There was so much evidence that for him to deny this evidence, he would have to commit intellectual suicide. That's why he became a Christian. So plenty of evidence. Josh McDowell has written, other than the resurrection factor, but literally volumes on evidence that demands a verdict. Lee Strobel, case for faith, case for Christ, case for creation. And so that's that. Christianity is a biblical faith. Christianity is a historical faith. But Christianity is a practical faith. We're still talking about the gospel as a true story. So it's a practical faith. Verse 4, he says that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So, okay, everybody look up here. You gotta get this, you gotta understand this. How many would agree with me that it's really important to know what you believe, okay? As a Christian, especially as a Christian, a lot of Christians don't even know what they believe. So what do you believe about Christ? Well, I, I, I just believe. And so you, you try to probe a little bit, try to find out. So you need to know what you believe. But it's also important not only to know what you believe, but to know why you believe. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, yeah, not only what you believe, but why you believe. If you were to ask a lot of people what they believe, and then they begin to spout something that's obviously non-Christian, and then if you were to ask them, so what's, what's the source? Where do you get that? And how reliable is the source? Most couldn't tell you. 
A lot of Americans would say, well, I read it in a book. Oh, that's good. Where's that book? It was in a library. Where's that library? It was in California. When did you read that? When I was on vacation. Oh, that's good. So uh, you don't remember the name of the book? What if the guy wrote a book that disputed everything that you read in that book? But, but most people don't think that far as you kind of research it. So it's not only important to know what you believe as a believer, but to know why you believe what you believe. If you neglect the why, you'll drift from the what. If you don't have a good solid foundation for your faith, you will find yourself defenseless against the hard experience of suffering or the hard questions of a smart skeptic. I see, I see a lot of people defect from the faith. Typically, suffering is one of the things that takes them out. And then I've also seen where a lot of our young kids, when they graduate high school, they go to these universities and they have a, a professor who is giving them these dogmatic assertions and it, it creates such turmoil within their lives because they, don't, they not only don't know what they believe, but they don't know why they believe what they believe. That's why it's so critical. And this is a practical faith. The Bible gives us a foundation. It's not just some blind leap into a dark chasm. It's a faith founded on fact. It's historical. It's evidential. It's practical. It's a solid foundation. And not only does it give us a foundation for our lives, the Christian faith gives us a meaning that suffering can't take from you. It also gives you a satisfaction that is, that is not based on circumstances. It gives you an identity that doesn't crush you or exclude others. It gives you a hope that can face anything. It gives you a justice that doesn't create new oppressors. Those are five of the chapters from Timothy Keller's book, Making Sense of God, An Invitation to the Skeptical. Those are five chapters from his most recent book. In fact, that was a prequel to A Reason for God, An Age of Skepticism. And I would encourage you to read both those books. They're, they're very profound writings and really giving strong argument and showing how practical the Christian faith is. But let me, let me just show you just, a, just something that what I was doing this last week, and I meditate on God's word regularly. A couple of verses that the Lord gave me this last week were just unbelievably healthy for me, and I want to give them to you. Because no matter what you're facing here this morning, I mean, as you cut, cut to the chase and you kind of look at all of this and say, yeah, there's, there's plenty of evidence. It's a biblical faith. It's a historical faith. But more, most importantly, I want you to know, it's a practical faith. You can face anything with the faith that we have in Christ. And if you're, if you're kind of shaken by the things that are going on in your life currently, how do you grow in your certainty? How do you grow in your faith? You get to know him. A couple of verses here. One is Psalm 124, 8. I love this. It says, Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Yes. I love it. That verse alone, if you believed it and lived in the reality of it, it would change you. It would change how you face the difficulties of your life. Let me add another verse to it because it's the next verse. So Psalm 124, 8, our help is in the name of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth, who made the heaven and the earth. He's my helper. He's with me. He will never leave me or forsake me. And then Psalm 125, 1, so that's the end of uh, Psalm 124, that's 
verse 8, and now you jump to Psalm 125.1. It says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, cannot be shaken, but abides forever. You want an unshakable life? Right there, it's trust. How do you trust God? You get to know him and realize that he's your helper. And in the name, our help is in the name of the Lord. Name means character. So get to know his character, that he is the maker of heaven and earth. He's for you and not against you. So it's a practical faith. So don't believe Christianity because it's practical, because it works. But believe Christianity because it's true. And if it's true, it will certainly be practical and it will work. Here's the next point. So the gospel is a true, true story about Jesus. Now, I've, I have uh, almost beat this into you here at Desert Breeze, and so, so you should know this, but let me kind of walk through it here. It's all about Jesus. Look at verse four. He says that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. What were the things that he was taught? Well, I read in Luke 24, verses 25 through 27, these are the, this is a phenomenal story of these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they're despondent, they're feeling dejected, and guess who shows up? Jesus. And so he's walking with them on this road, and he's asking them, why are you guys so down in the dumps? And they said, are you the only one that hasn't heard about this Jesus of Nazareth? We thought he was the Messiah. And before we knew it, he was hanging on a cross. He died, and then yet we had some women, part of our camp, came to us and said, but he's been resurrected, and we don't know what's going on, and oh my goodness, and this is so, and they were such in turmoil. And so this is what Jesus said to them. This was part of our reading, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Remember prophets, Old Testament predictions? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What was Jesus saying? It's all about me. It's all about me. And I was, I was supposed to. And they still didn't get it. They still didn't get it as they're walking there with him. But so here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to discuss it with the folks sitting around you. And so this is for extra point. This will count on your final. And so you'll be able to see. I mean, if you, you should know this. If you've hung out with us for the last four or five months, you'll know the answer to this one. But I need to keep pounding it in so that you remember it. But is the Bible, and we could also say the gospel, or is the Bible, is the gospel primarily a book about what we must do to be right with God, or is the Bible primarily a book about what God has done to make us right with him? Turn to the folks next to you and discuss that real quick. And, and give a good reason for that, too. Whatever your answer is, give a good reason. Okay, what are you guys thinking? Yell it out to me. It's all about him. Is it all about what, what he has done or is it about what we must do? What he's done. Because if we make it all about what we must do, we turn the Bible into kind of like Aesop's fables and it becomes a book about moralism. By the way, there's a lot of churches these days and there's a tendency that they fall prey to, oh, look at this, boys and girls. This is a nice story. What are the lessons we can learn for today? Okay, let's apply these lessons to our life. Now you go out there and you play hard. 
It's like, well, that's not what the Bible is primarily about. Though it does give us some good life lessons. It gives us some really good instruction about our lives. But if you start with what it's, if you start with it being based on what you must do to be right with God, it's gonna crush you. It makes you very self-absorbed. It's not primarily a book about what you must do to be right with God. It's primarily a book about what God has done to make us right with him. And it doesn't crush us, it completes us, and we become more God-absorbed. It's about his finished work for us. And yes, does that change our life? Yes, absolutely, in a lot of different ways. We don't obey him to get his blessing. We have his blessing, therefore we obey him. Don't reverse the order. It becomes moralism. Now, if I were to say, okay, let's talk about the great commandment, Matthew 22, 34 through 40. And you need to live this if you want God's blessing. You know that. That would be a wrong way to apply that. But the great, command, uh, great commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. None of us do that. Did you know that none of us actually really do that the way that we probably should? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Does he dominate your thoughts, stir your deep, deepest emotion, move you to action? To be quite honest with you, there are times that my favorite football team does more to me than that. And don't look at me like that because that's true about you too. There are things in your life that you get way more excited. I've seen you. You get more excited about than what I've seen your excitement here in church reading your Bible or, you know, just like, you know what I'm saying? Does he dominate your solitude? If you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he would dominate your solitude. He would stir your deepest emotions. There were nothing. And he would, you would give him your, your deepest heart's loyalties and affections, but we don't always do that. We struggle with that. And evidence of that is, that, is because we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. No, let me define that for you here real quick. Uh, so what does that mean to love your neighbor as yourself? So do you love the people in your life? Do you seek to meet their needs with the same amount of thought emotion and action as you meet your own need? Can you imagine the difference it would make in our marriages, in our homes? But none of us do that. How about this, that you and a coworker are up for promotion, but your coworker gets it instead of you. Do you celebrate that as much as you would celebrate if you got the promotion? Because that's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Oh my goodness, now that you put it that way, there's no way. I mean, it's crushing. That's crushing. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor, none of us do that. And yet when we understand what Jesus has done for us, and he gave his life for us, we wanna live like that. Not to get his blessing, but because we have his blessing. And the whole Bible is about what he has done to make us right with him, and then out of that, it changes our lives. So when Jesus says that the Bible is all about him, it means that he lived the life we should have lived and earned God's blessing and died the death we should have died and took God's curse. And when we believe in him, all that we deserve is accredited to Christ, to Jesus, and all that he deserves is accredited to us. Now God loves you and accepts you and delights in you as if you did everything that Jesus has done. And so not only when you look at the Old Testament, and that's what Jesus is saying, not only is the whole Old Testament all the laws about him because Jesus fulfilled all of those laws, but also all the stories are about him. That's why I like what Timothy Keller says. He goes through a whole list. I won't give you, a, 
everything on this list. It's a long list, but let me give you some of these Old Testament stories so that you can begin to see Christ more clearly in these stories. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who though innocently slain has blood now that cries out, not for our condemnation but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Joseph. Remember Joseph in the Old Testament? Who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better Jonah. Remember Jonah in the well? who was cast out into the storm so that, he, so that we could be brought in. Just a, just a small glimpse of the Old Testament stories. Here on your notes, the gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe in him have eternal life. So here's what Jesus came to do. Here's three of your fill in the blanks. He came to set us free from the penalty of sin, that's justification, and I'm not even going to go into detail. We did a whole series uh, through Romans on this. You can go online and listen to this or get the app, DB app, and listen. So penalty of sin, he came to set us free from the power of sin. That's called sanctification, wholeness, holiness. And then he came to set us free from the presence of sin. That's what's in the future, glorification, to be with him for all eternity. God is ever on our side because in Christ our sins can't bring us into condemnation. And so to the degree you begin to understand that it's about Jesus and all that he's done for you, this is how I can tell whether or not you're really getting it, is by your unspeakable and glorious joy. Do you have unspeakable and glorious joy? Not, not usually. So indescribable, indestructible joy. Good news of great joy. Because we're going to get to it eventually in the study of Luke. But in Luke chapter 2, verse 10, the Angels said to the shepherds, I bring you good news of what? Great joy, indescribable, indestructible joy is what you will experience to the degree you begin to live in the reality of the book, the story of the gospel, of the whole Bible being about Jesus and what he's come to do for us that challenges the mind and satisfies the heart. The gospel is a true story about Jesus that challenges the mind and satisfies the heart. We're almost finished here. So here's the next point on your notes. Number one, a deepening knowledge of God precedes a deepening affection for God. The more you get to know him, the more you will love him. You can't love God deeply until you know him deeply. And to know God deeply begins by the challenging of your mind. The context here is that these guys' minds, the disciples' minds on the road to Emmaus and all the other disciples, they were being challenged. This is what they said to Jesus in verse 20 there in chapter 24. They condemned him to death and crucified him. And we, verse 21, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. He was. They just didn't get it. It's challenging their minds. They had no idea that they had witnessed the greatest act of salvation in history. But see, they were hoping for political salvation for Israel, but he had come for the spiritual salvation of the world. Only if your God can contradict you and make you struggle will you know that you worship the real God and not a figment of your imagination. As we work through the gospel according to Luke, it's going to challenge our minds 
but it's going to satisfy our hearts. And so, defensible arguments about the Bible's reliability are necessary, but not sufficient, because you can know a lot about God, but not know him. Here's the next point. This is what we want as we work our way through the Gospel of Luke. The goal of the Bible, the the goal of the Gospel of Luke is to bring Jesus into your life as a living presence. That's why we study God's Word. We want him to be a living presence in our lives. Look at verses 31 and 32, chapter 24 that we read. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? There's a major difference between knowing that Jesus is with you as a concept and knowing the Jesus that is with you as a reality. You can know a lot about him, but it's, made, it's a lot different than knowing him, a living presence. How do you get there? It's the next point in your notes. You must break bread with Christ regularly in worship and in friendship. Breaking bread in the Bible is a metaphor for those two things, worship and friendship, both corporately, in large setting, like what we do here on weekend services, and also in our small groups, but also individually, that you would break bread. What do you do when you break bread? We break bread when we take communion, but we break bread when you're, many of you are gonna break bread, you're probably gonna go out with some friends after we're finished up here. What do you do? There's, there's a level of intimacy, there's a closeness, you share your lives. That's what he's talking about here. What's fascinating about this story is that that as, as we've walked through all this evidence, see, you can reason to a point of probability beyond a reasonable doubt, but it takes commitment to lead to certainty. It wasn't until they broke bread with him that their eyes were opened and saw that it was Jesus. So you can reason to a point of probability. Somebody's trying to shut me off there, weren't they? So it's time to finish. I'm, I'm probably in a kind of a dead zone there. Here we go. It's, you can reason to a point of probability beyond a reasonable doubt, but it takes commitment to lead to certainty. You've got to sit down and break bread with him. You've got to invite Jesus in. You've got to know Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Have you given your life to him? When was the last time that you, you sat down and you opened up God's word and you just said, God, speak to me. I want to know you. I want to encounter you. I want to experience you in my life. A living presence, a living presence. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you're losing your footing, going back to the analogy we started with. You're losing your footing, you're beginning to fall off of this high cliff. Maybe the high cliff is relational or it's financial or maybe it's a physical high cliff. There is a branch sticking out of the side of the cliff that is your only hope and more than strong enough to support your weight. That branch is Jesus. And even if you have all sorts of doubt and uncertainty about whether it can, it can take care of you, if you will reach out and embrace him, cling to him, he will save you. Listen to me, he will save you. Listen, it's not, it's not the size of your faith, it's the object of your faith that matters most. Put your faith in him. Trust in him. Get to know him. And as you spend time with him and as you break bread with him corporately, individually, oh, my goodness, your faith will soar. Your faith will soar. Invite him into your life. 
Acknowledge your sin that separates you from him. Believe that he died on the cross for your sins and confess him as your Savior and Lord. Next weekend, we're gonna talk about the next gift that we will, that we will open up as promise of these Christmas gifts. And if God is a... If God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God, what do you do when you feel like God has let you down? That's what we're gonna talk about next week. So let me give you a blessing. Here's my blessing for you for this, uh, for this weekend. As we embark upon this study through the Gospel of Luke, as we break bread with one another, both corporately and individually, may we grow in our certainty that the Gospel is a true story about Jesus that challenges our minds and satisfies our hearts as Christ becomes more and more a living presence in our lives that empowers us to be what he wants us to be and to do what he wants us to do for his glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have a happy Thanksgiving.